Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you could take now to prepare for the journey. Once again, it's just me, your intrepid host, Jerry Perullo, ex-CISO, and jack of all trades, ex-CISO. Today, I'm going to continue working through a little survey of all different things that are available to people like me that retired after being a technology executive for many years. And we've talked a little bit already about a overview of everything that's available. And then we jumped right into board directorship. And so for the next episode, I was kind of torn between whether to go into angel investing or advisory work. And I've got an equal amount of feedback and interest and just interesting topics about both of those. But ultimately, I realized that I should just sandwich the two of them together. And so to define terms and set expectations up front, when I say advisory work, I'm going to be talking about helping a company, and that's usually a startup, with guidance and wisdom from your experience in exchange for equity or similar participation and upside for the company. Now, it's also possible to perform that kind of work for a paycheck, but I'm going to call that consulting just to keep it clean for the podcast. So I hear considerable curiosity and interest about both of these areas angel investing and advisory work, and they can both warrant dedicated time. But I'm not combining them just to save that time, but rather because in essence, I'm going to argue that they're really the same thing. And so to jump right to the quick on that, I'm saying that you should choose and evaluate advisory opportunities the exact same way that you would evaluate investments. And that the only real difference at the end of the day should be the currency that you deploy to make your investment. And so in angel investing, as we'll discuss in a moment, you're deploying your cash by writing a check. And advisory work, you're deploying your time, experience, and sometimes your brand as well. So as you can see, understanding private investment fundamentals should not only be a prerequisite to angel investing, but also to pursuing advisory work. Now, first off, little disclaimer. I don't like to do too many of those, but since we're talking about investing here, uh, I want to make sure that it's really clear that I'm not a professional. So I like to say I'm not a lawyer or a doctor. And I'm also not a financial planner or a financial advisor or a professional investor even. As a matter of fact, if it's not cybersecurity or board directorship, you can be pretty certain I don't hold any professional accreditation. So be sure to speak to a real professional before actioning anything based on what you hear about in investments here. So let's jump in some discussion about mechanics and terminology of investing. And bear in mind that these are going to be core underpinning concepts to advisory work as well. So first off, my goal here is to get you to understand the concepts and terms around private investing and advisory work, but I'm not devoting a ton of time here to how to pick winners or whether or not you should even consider this type of investing. What I will say about that, though, is that when you evaluate your finances and determine what mix of investments makes sense for you, writing a check in the traditional angel investment manner is going to have the most immediate material impact on that mix. So you want to do that full portfolio analysis potentially talking with a professional advisor and putting some limits on how much you want to invest in the high-risk space of venture and angel opportunities before you evaluate any opportunities, right? So you'll want to mix it in and make sure that you have money available that you can afford to lose and that you want to invest and have some growth in. And then out of your entire portfolio, you might have some more conservative investments. You may have retirement-type investments. 
Uh, you may have stocks, you may have fixed income instruments like bonds, and then when you get into the more aggressive stuff, you might find some private investment opportunities, and angel investing will be a subset of that. So you want to first make sure before you write any checks that you're not throwing everything behind that and that you've understood the risk around it. Now, what I just said can actually be an allure for advisory work, because here you're not putting any cash out. The risk actually is that you then consider that as a zero downside proposition, so your time and energy are finite and over committing yourself can result in having to miss other opportunities. But more importantly, advisory work can jeopardize your reputation and they can do it a lot more than angel investing. And I think life after CISO is really built on your credibility and reputation. So you need to think about what you might do to damage all your other opportunities before you select an advisory relationship. So, and to put that another way, you can write a check into the dumbest idea ever and lose all your money instantly, and nobody ever really has to find out about it. And even if they did, at worst, they might just be sympathetic that you lost all your money. But when you partner with a firm as an advisor, you're making a statement about that company and how it aligns with your philosophy, your values, and your expertise in cybersecurity. So if you rush out and you sign on to any advisory opportunity that comes your way, you're going to erode your reputation and credibility among your peers which means other chief information security officers and CIOs and others out there. So don't race to the competition of having the longest list of advisor relationships on your LinkedIn profile. You want to screen the opportunities the exact same way that you would screen investments. So that should bring us to some investing basics. So first off, I like to call this whole domain intentional investing. And I think that has some you know, literal, obvious definition to it. But what I mean by that is investing has these three different properties. And they're basically don't screw up, win, and diversify. I'm really trying to oversimplify them here, but let me go into a little more detail on them. So by don't screw up, I mean you want to avoid situational errors and mistakes that disadvantage you over the rest of the field. And there's plenty of opportunity that in any type of investing. My number two, I just said win, but what I really mean by that is to look for advantages that are unique to you that give you some asymmetrical edge over the field. And then lastly, when I say diversify, what you're trying to do there is invest with enough frequency, volume, and or category diversity to protect you from outlier events and things that are outside your foresight and the ability to possibly predict. Uh, and you want to be able to learn from your experience. You want to have enough diversity so even the losers you can learn from and put that into your next investment and not learn from it and run away with your tail between your legs forever. So let's spend some more time on number one there. Don't screw up, avoiding situational errors, right? So that really includes having transparent access to all of the data available and strong legal protections. And the stock market has that in spades because that's what security laws are all about when the SEC requires transparency and they provide recourse if you lose on any kind of tilted field. And there's nonstop litigation around that and there's all kinds of requirements that add to the cost for a company to be public because of that very reason. But in the private markets of what are called unregistered securities, and that's what we're talking about here, you're on your own. And that drives a unique requirement, a regulatory requirement, that you are an accredited investor before startups or funds are permitted to take your investment of cash. Now, that's not the case when you're just investing your time, so that could be one advantage of advisory work for you. Just like getting stock options from an employer, you don't have to be an accredited investor to receive options or even equity in consideration for your time and counsel. 
but you do if you want to write a check. So the general premise here is that you have to be a financially sophisticated investor capable of understanding and absorbing the inherently higher, higher risk. Contractual agreements for private investments are going to require you to meet that accredited investor definition via one or more of several criteria, such as having an annual income of over $200,000 or a net worth of over a million dollars. So you want to read those agreements carefully because not only are they spelling out and explaining the law to you that you need to make sure you're actually compliant with, but they're also going to make important disclaimers about the substantial risks of private investing, including that significant likelihood your investment value will go to zero. So if you actually read all the paperwork, you're going to get reminded of that a lot. And that's good because if you just need to hide from it in order to tolerate it, uh, that's not the right look. You want to actually be doing it because you can. So even if you are an accredited investor or investing via your advisory agreements, how can you be expected to manage due diligence around companies? You know, kicking the tires, really examining the financial statements uh, and the legal contracting, right? Because in any investment, there's going to be paperwork that's full of gotchas and loopholes and pitfalls left and right. Well, that's an area where angel work and advisory work can diverge quite a bit. So nothing's a replacement for retaining qualified counsel, but one angel investing strategy that can help a lot is to use the resources of professional investors and particularly venture capital firms by doing what I like to call writing their paper. And what I mean by that is that you can start with the contractual provisions that VCs or venture capital firms are requiring by co-investing with them. So that means there's an investment round that founders are raising. They've already gotten in touch with venture capitalists. They've agreed on which ones are going to invest with them. And the VCs lawyers and the founders lawyers have gone back and forth and they've hammered out all of these terms and they've done a much better job of it than I certainly would and probably you would either. And they're going to be thinking of all the things that someone who's gotten burned for the last 20 years is going to know about. They're going to have read all the books and, well, hell, they're actually going to be lawyers. So if you can co-invest with them, then your terms are basically, I'm going to get the same terms as the institutional investors, meaning the venture capital firms in there. And that's a great strategy. Now, you certainly should read all of the paperwork, of course, and have your own lawyer look through it. Temper your expectations with how many changes you're going to make to it. So when your lawyer goes nuts and tries to come up with all these aggressive things, make sure that they're actually being realistic about things that really are going to matter because you're not likely to make changes there, especially since your money is going to be pretty insubstantial compared to that that the venture capital group is investing. Now, setting aside angel work or angel investing work, on the advisory side, the agreements are going to be a lot simpler. And so that's going to be really helpful. Now, that said, it's still a great idea, and thanks to the simplicity, it would be a lot cheaper to have qualified counsel review those types of agreements as well. So when it comes to angel investing, I'm clearly a big fan of inheriting all that hard work and negotiation that a lead VC's lawyers have already performed. But when it comes to advisory work, there's a lot less structure out there. And first of all, if it's a young startup, and particularly a first-time entrepreneur, there's a pretty good chance that they're not going to have any agreements in place with anyone else already, and they'll be willing to take your input. And second, it's not uncommon for founders to default to using the terms in their employee stock option plan that they have already established for advisors. But there's some key situational differences that can make that undesirable. That said, there are definitely a lot of commonalities there, and that's going to be the basis if there are options granted. They're probably going to be subject to a, an employee stock option plan that the company had already established. But Everything in there isn't sufficient for your advisory agreement. You're going to want some additional separate terms. 
And in either way, whether you're evaluating a startup's paper, uh, so to speak, and, and they're supplying something to you, or they're so green to all this that they ask you, hey, do you, do you have a contract you'd like to work? Either way, I found a great reference template out there called the FAST. And that stands for the Founder Advisory Standard Template. And it's available at a remarkably easy to say URL of fi.co slash fast. And that's fi like financial institution dot co like company slash fast. There's some things in that default template that I'm not crazy about. Like for example, there's an attempt in there to simplify the number of options, like the actual amount of equity that you get via this table of percent ownership in the company that you deserve, depending on how sophisticated of an advisor you are and that sort of thing. I, I mean, I don't blame them for trying. You got to put something out there, but it's highly unlikely to be persuasive or very accurate in any situation. It's, it might be a nice idea for you just to kind of get a general ballpark of what you should be looking at. But the general simplicity of the rest of the agreement is really awesome. And it works as, at a minimum, a great table of contents for things that you should be worried about. And I found one specific item that they have to be really bang on, and that's vesting schedules. So vesting is a unique concept to stock option plans, and it's usually dealt with just by employees. And the general idea behind vesting is that a company wants to dangle some equity awards out in front of their employees to invent, incentivize them not to quit. They don't want to give them this massive stock and then they can just leave a month later and cash in on it years into the future when the company does well without any of their help. So for employees, that works via what we call rolling grants that get refreshed each year. And so your stock options might not fully vest over uh, until the end of a four-year period or a three-year period. Those are the two that are most popular. And that means that you get, let's say, 100 options today. You can't actually do anything with them for, let's say, a year. And then you can suddenly you have 25 of them to you. And then after that, they'll incrementally vest and be available to you for the balance of that vesting period, let's say four years. But it works because you have these rolling grants. So each year, you're going to get another grant that in essence extends the golden handcuffs, as I say, for four years from that point. And if you do the math, and once you've been there for four years, you'll have four overlapping option grants that are all vesting in any given year. And the net effect for a company that's doing well and increasing in value is that it's gonna be really hard for an employee that's made it that far to find a competitive offer and leave. Now vesting for an advisor has some similarities certainly, but also key differences. So first of all, advisors aren't people that founders are going to want to lock up for 25 years and then buy a gold watch and send off into retirement. That's not really how it works. It's not like an employee relationship. Advisors are brought in for specific strengths that the company needs at that specific time. And their benefit's usually going to be pretty front-loaded. So a founder might need an advisor to comment on the product roadmap this quarter, for example, or point out which features a CISO would buy immediately versus finding nice to have. They might need a, an introduction to get some key logos at this point in their growth. And by logos, I mean, you know, highly recognized brands to build their own recognition in the industry. Or they may want to hit you with some sample pitching and market literature and, and hear what, what might catch the most attention at an upcoming summit, something like that. But in any event, it's likely that the first two, if not one year of an advisory relationship is going to have some fixed specific outcomes that really maximize that value. It's almost like contract work in a way. And likewise, it's unlikely, maybe even uh, never happens, to, for an advisor agreement to have any refresh or any annual grants built into it. 
Now, advisors can certainly establish new agreements. So once a year or once every two years, you can just have a new agreement that you come to and, and get a new tranche of options. Absolutely. But I've never seen a refresh built in that's automatic like that. And so as a result, the vesting periods for advisors are generally much shorter than employees. And the initial benefit is usually realized much sooner versus, I don't know if you remember, but in my example, I said waiting one year to get that initial vest, that's called a cliff. And so while an employee agreement may vest over four years with a one-year cliff, meaning zero vesting occurs if you leave in that first year, the most common structure in my experience for advisors is exactly the default in the FAST agreement. And I'll read it to you. And it says in default, all shares shall vest on a pro rata basis monthly over a two-year period with a three-month cliff period. Two-year vest with a three-month cliff. So that cliff, the purpose of that being even three months, is that that gives the founders a period for buyer's remorse, where the founder can walk away if the advisor turns out to be a terrible fit without having to keep in touch and keep financial statements sent to them and give them this reward down the road six years from then when they go public or anything like that. So three months, kind of probation period, if you will. But then after that, the vesting gets going, and it's complete fully by the end of the vesting period, and in this case, the second year. And you got to think of it as the vesting period is, in essence, your employment contract. You know, that's the period for which you're expected to continue providing value in order to get the original compensation, the options that you agreed to. So if that drags on and on, uh, it could just be very unrealistic. And I can tell you, in my experience, two years is really the median and the mode. I mean, that's just what almost everybody's agreeing to. I don't think it's because of this sample agreement. Um, they may be co-symptomatic, if you will. Uh, I've seen one-year agreements as well, you know, for companies that are very to the point and they want to get something done and then they're willing to revisit again after the period's up. Uh, I've seen three and I've seen some attempts at four, um, but I've seen most of the people who try something like that will ultimately just through education and talking to, uh, for example, investors that are in there that have more experience with founders and with advisors that will counsel them to say, no, 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 and pretty much explain what I just did and why a two-year period or something closer to that would make more sense. So I haven't seen those longer periods out there as a negotiating tactic, but more almost like, a, um, like an error. So another important aspect of any option agreement, and it certainly includes advisory options, is this concept of accelerated vesting. So the idea here is that if a company gets bought or goes public or otherwise has a liquidity event, meaning a, a time for shareholders to exchange them for, for cash or some other currency, then there has to be something forcing the new owner to honor your agreement or accelerate your vesting, meaning pay you out as if it's accelerated in full and all the vesting is complete. Now, remember, this is particularly interesting for an advisor. Because a purchase of a company usually indicates a huge strategic revamp for the company. You know, sometimes it's just bought for some intellectual property. Sometimes it's just bought for some key individuals. Sometimes it's bought to migrate into an existing product set and do some cross-selling through it. So there's going to be a huge strategic change almost certainly for a company. And so it's much cleaner to specify accelerated vesting and just let the new leadership evaluate which advisors they want to keep or if they want to totally change directions, not use advisors, use more advisors, use different types of advisors, could be anything. So accelerated vesting is very alluring and makes a lot of sense in that regard. Now, the FAST agreement has what I'll call an advisor-friendly default term in there as well. And to read it aloud, it says 100% of unvested shares shall vest on closing of sale of the company. 
Now, in my experiences, I've definitely seen those tighter vesting schedules that I mentioned, like two years pretty often. But in reality, that accelerated vesting is definitely more problematic. I've got to be totally transparent and candid there. I mean, I definitely, as an advisor, would love to convince the whole world that accelerated vesting should be standard. But in reality, more times than not, I've seen pushback. So I'll certainly advocate for it. But as that vesting period gets drawn down, I think the problem there is that there's more of an attitude of, well, just roll the dice because your risk decreases each month and the risk is completely gone in two years, meaning you're vesting all the while anyway. So if the company gets bought 90% of the way through your vesting period, and even it's a worst case scenario and the new owners decide to nullify that and not do any further vesting, you still got 90% of your equity in there. And they think that's a risk that you should be willing to take. Now, every agreement is a negotiation and everything's on the table. So by all means, push for that. And the longer the period, uh, or potentially if there's an imminent takeover, I mean, the last thing you want to do is sign on, help them close a few key deals, and then they get completely rolled into a private equity fund or something like that in three months, and you're just you know left holding the bag. So you know, it's certainly something that you want to evaluate and you can negotiate through. And uh, maybe that overzealous lawyer of yours can really add some value there. So now we've wandered deep into some mechanical details. So I want to remind everybody of where we were in the outline, if you will. So we were talking about avoiding mistakes, right? Number one of three things. Avoiding mistakes when you evaluate and enter into these investments, whether they're angel investments or advisory agreements. And of course, those mistakes are often reflected in contracts, and that's why we spent so much time there. So now let's move on to item number two, leveraging advantages or playing to your strengths. So item number two is all about that career you just retired from. So how do you identify your advantages? Follow the money. Look for areas where you've been able to earn in the past based on your unique abilities and experiences. So if you're a chief information security officer, that's likely to be cybersecurity, but also think more broadly, risk management. It could be even enterprise procurement, vendor management, third-party risk management. And it might just be hardcore technology if you're a CISO from that kind of background. But you definitely want to know your limits too. You don't want to invest in what you were supposed to know or what your mother-in-law thought you were an expert at. You want to invest in things that you're actually really good at. So being a CISO doesn't guarantee that you're an expert in, for example, cryptography. You know, you feel free to pass on investments where you just don't feel you're an expert. Just to be clear, you know, this is not a luxury that venture capitalists even, or for that matter, angel investors generally enjoy. If you look at the money behind blockchain startups or space and low earth orbit satellite innovation, maybe 1% of the money behind there are, is from someone or some group who can actually reiterate what the company does. You know, if you read books about venture capital investing, you're going to see a lot about evaluating the team and their character, which I will definitely admit is important science in itself. And you're going to see a lot about evaluating the fundamentals that you can grasp, like financials and, and total addressable market and that sort of thing. But then there's a strong theme that you're going to read about, about how ultimately you have to take a leap of faith once you get to some basic level of knowledge. And look, you still have to do that with any startup around so many other variables. But when it comes to the hard science, investing or advising as a tech executive in particular is a spot where you can exert an asymmetrical advantage. So in my case, I want to have used a product hands-on before I commit to it. And that means commit to either writing a check to invest in it or to signing on as an advisor. And that's pretty unusual. So when I ask for founders for a, a login to a dashboard or to onboard my personal cloud account in their security tool, 
they're pretty surprised in general. But most of them really love it and find it refreshing once they clarify what I mean. And you know, perhaps a lot of that desire goes to my imposter syndrome and how terrible I feel if I'm ever speaking at a school about something. And any CISO knows that that comes with the territory a lot. But I don't want to be in that situation if I'm telling my friends and my peers about how great a product or service is. So if you have strong chops in a certain area, focus there and get your hands dirty up front. Now, on to the third item, investment frequency and volume. Now, that's all about making sure that risky angel investments, first of all, have an appropriate place among less risky investments in your total portfolio. And then that within your, inv- your angel investments that you consider distributing your risk across multiple investments over time. And since my whole investment thesis within cyber is into sticking what I, to what I know, it stands to reason that there's not going to be a ton of true diversity in my targets. I mean, they're all going to be cybersecurity at a minimum. So I try to diversify beyond cyber in other aspects of my investing life. But when it comes to angel investing and advisory work, I'm 100% laser focused on cybersecurity. Now, if my whole career and my expertise and all of my intellectual capital was invested in knitting or basket weaving or something like that, I might not have that luxury. I mean, I think that's great, but it's probably not going to be very profitable. But I'm willing to roll the dice on this particular aspect of my life quite a bit because I feel like cybersecurity's got some legs to it. Nothing's perfect, but it seems like it's going to be around for a little while here. But anyway, within cybersecurity, I do try to synthesize diversity um, through volume, so making investments in a number of companies. So diversity over sectors, cyber and other things, is going to protect you from cyber going belly up. And like I said, I was willing to make that risk. Uh, But doing it over volume is all about trying to insulate you from some kind of outlier event. And so to accomplish that, I I don't have the, the time, the money, or anything else to just make Um, 50 or 100 individual angel investments. So to synthesize that, as I like to say, I use some cybersecurity-related venture capital funds to force multiply. So in addition to investing directly into a company, there's a handful of cases where I'll invest in a fund with venture capitalists that I really admire, um, but they'll be very focused on cybersecurity as well. And so that gives me exposure to, for each given investment into a fund, to the 10 to 15 cybersecurity companies that they're likely to invest in in that particular fund. And so while diversity by subject matter is intended to insulate you from something that brings down global demand for a whole area, diversity via volume is just about insulating you from those black swan events. And that just means the team can fail for any number of reasons far beyond your control, even if the product and the character of the individuals is awesome. And so if and when one of those manifests, you don't want it to really end your investing life. So how to get started, right? So that's where investing as a subject matter expert begins to really differentiate uh, versus just a standalone angel investor. Traditional angel investors who are not leveraging some specific experience or skill set spend a whole lot of time worrying about what they call deal flow. And that means being invited to review and consider making an investment to begin with in a new startup. And so that often drives traditional angel investors down to earlier stages of companies where word of mouth might get a founder in touch with a friend's rich aunt or something like that. And such angel investors will often aggregate into clubs and share information so that they can become aware of investment opportunities. But they have to bear the added risk of investing at those earlier stages. A lot of angel investors would actually prefer to have a lower risk and a more concrete product, if not metrics, of a Series A investment. So a little bit later along than a seed round company. 
But with an often oversubscribed round of venture capital firms, they're already eager to get into a Series A of cybersecurity with multi-million dollar investments. There's just no room for individual small investors or angels. And that's a big differentiator, though. So CISOs, on the other hand, may be able to barter valuable experience and advice for a seat at the table to co-invest in a round where their check size is otherwise uninteresting or underwhelming. So how does one get involved and get this deal flow as a CISO? The simplest answer is to forge relationships with VC firms and offer your valuable insight in screening potential deals for them up front. And depending on your employer's policies, if you're still working, you may be able to do that for a cash retainer or some formal ability to participate in investing. But it's likely a lot simpler and more valuable just to do it pro bono to establish goodwill and awareness of startups. And if you end up with an opportunity to invest via cash or to pick up an advisor relationship, it's going to have to be for the future value that you can bring to the startup and not the past value that you brought to the VC during screening. So you need to demonstrate your helpfulness to the founders and startups during the screening process as well and not to the VCs. So screening deals, excellent way to meet founders and products you want to invest in, to gain experience knowing the range of talent and ideas that are out there, and to stay close to the VCs that will be aware of investing opportunities. And when you're forging those relationships with VCs and you're having conversations with them, I highly recommend that you don't limit your conversation to just the deal that you're screening for them. I mean, you certainly want to provide the feedback that they asked you for and give them your perspective on that. But don't limit yourself to just that. And instead, also ask them about being an investor. You know, they're professionals at this. Ask them what they thought about the personalities and what red flags they saw, what twitches or body language or something from their LinkedIn profile or Google. You know, get an idea of how they got this far along already anyway so that you can get a lot smarter about that other part of your investing logic that's beyond cybersecurity or technology. And there's a lot more to angel investing. There's so many mechanics to it. And I just recommend you pick up a book if you want to learn more about the different rounds and about dilution and pro rata rights and all the different types of exit scenarios and how all the different nuances of a contract can manifest depending on the different exit scenarios. So there's a ton about that. And I may dive deeper into that and maybe even with a guest in a later episode. But there's only one other thing that I really want to make sure I talk about during this episode, and that's conflicts and disclosures. And especially for those of you that are still working as a cybersecurity or technology executive today. So your firm's policies may or may not explicitly prohibit you from investing in private opportunities or require approval for any transaction. And if it's the latter requiring approval, it's common to have what's known as a double materiality test. And that's first, whether your investment would be material to the company. And second, whether the investment would actually be material to you. And by material, what we mean is it being such a substantial part of, in the first case, that company's entire capitalization, or in the latter case, of all of the money that you're investing or all of the money that's in your net worth for that matter. So with angel investing, the latter, it being material to you, is more likely. So a policy like that is just making sure that you're not going to be perversely incentivized towards unethical behavior just to avoid financial ruin. But once you ensure compliance with your trading policy, you separately need to consider potential conflicts of interest in your ongoing duties when the vendor is in cybersecurity and you're a CISO. So once again, first, start out with your published policies and consult with your compliance team first. But a general rule 
is that you don't want to be making financial decisions around a vendor for your company when you have any personal gain or loss at stake from the firm's success. So that said, being invested does not mean that you have to disqualify your company from being a customer, from availing itself of this awesome product that you're so passionate about, but rather that it's appropriate and really required for you to disclose your conflicts to the appropriate personnel and likely to recuse yourself from the financial decision-making so you're not the one actually making that final decision. So establish those rules of engagement with your compliance team and get something in writing, and an email's fine, you don't have to get something signed there. But a good starting offer would be to say that, for example, if and when you have any potential investment conflict with a current or potential vendor, that you will not participate in any financial decision-making around the relationship, and instead will disclose the conflict to your supervisor and redirect the approval to a peer. And if you enter into an arrangement like that, you know, consider making your technical team available to that peer without your involvement so that that peer can get the dirty on this product and the good and the bad and the ugly from your team without your involvement. Now, speaking of your team, that brings up a, a really interesting point that I think is not super obvious. So what about your team? Should you let them know early on that you're invested in a potential vendor? Well, I mean, that's certainly up to you, and it feels like the right thing to do to be as transparent as possible and disclose everything, but it can actually backfire on you there. You know, the aim is to get an objective, unbiased, unskewed decision from them about any given vendor. And it's very possible that you disclosing that you've invested in and or otherwise are committed to that company can have the reverse effect in those cases. As a superior, it's possible that disclosing an investment will actually give this unintended message that you expect the team to favor that product. And it's, it's almost sad because you don't want them to act unethically on your behalf and you want them to know that ethics are always much more important in your personal relationship. But these things can happen. So again, you can consult your compliance team for their advice and certainly if there's rules around it. But you want to take your company culture into account uh, and consider treating that vendor identically to the competition and doing anything you can so that they get the exact same treatment when your team is reviewing them. And more times than not, that means just not telling them anything different about uh, your involvement with them. But again, you, you, know, you do want to disclose where you have to and where it makes sense, which is upward uh, to the compliance group and to appear if you do decide to go forward and you need to recuse yourself. So as I noted before, there's so much more to investing and to angel investing, and I look forward to taking more time in the future to do more full treatment and talk about other options, talk a little more about funds and exits, talk about SPVs and syndicates and these groups that you could get into, and, and even talking the moving money. And by the way, there I'll just say, beware wire transfer fraud. But I just want to start with those bits, and I hope that proves helpful and can clarify some things for you if you're considering exploring angel investing or doing advisory work in the near future. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in and certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes.